Now, how significant was this event that we have just read about here in these few verses in Acts 16, verses 11 through 15? Well, I find that there is more space devoted in the book of Acts to the mission in Philippi than in any other city in the second and third missionary journeys of Paul. Though they had only a brief stay there, there is an awful lot of emphasis that has been put upon it. We mentioned the word providence. It is a fascinating word, one that perhaps is not very easily defined, but let me see if we can break it down a little bit. It comes, first of all, from the prefix pra, which would speak of being before, and then the word video is actually toward the end of it, and that's a word we know well about. So to see something beforehand is really at the heart of the word providence. Now, my wife did something that was providential for Eliza and I this, this week, in fact, uh, affecting us very much today. Because on Tuesday, when she and Ethan set out uh, to get him down to school and for my wife to spend some time ministering to our parents down there, uh, she did everything she could to make sure that our food situation was taken care of in advance. And I'm awfully glad she did. One of the most challenging things would have been for, for Eliza or me to make something for the potluck today, because uh, Sunday mornings are very busy. So my wife providentially bought some little Smokies and put them in the fridge, and she said, all you have to do on Sunday morning is put those things in a crock pot, smother them with barbecue sauce, turn it on, and then bring it to the lunch, and I thought, I think I can do that. So uh, I'm glad for her providential care. You see, she saw ahead of time that there would be a need, and she took care of it. Now, how much more significant is this word when God is the subject or the actor of it, not a, not a human being? When you think about God's omniscience, that he knows all things, that he has never once been informed of something that he did not know. Just imagine what that must be like. God, who is from eternity past, who has planned in advance our salvation before we ever heard the gospel, he had already planned out before the world began, friends, how that would all come about. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? To think about God in his omnipotence, that is, his having all power in heaven and in earth, all the ability to do to function and to bring about his will. Think about all the things that providentially he does to accomplish his will. And then think about his omnipresence. That's important in regard to providence as well because think about the fact that it's not just us and our world around us that God is arranging and bringing together, but even things that are affecting people on the other side of the world how God can sometimes bring people from different continents together, different language groups together. Think about when missionaries go to foreign fields, such as the Grovers. Think about what God has been preparing in a country like Ecuador, not just in this generation or a past generation, but from generations ago, preparing them for the work of the gospel. And so when the gospel finally comes to a place like that or other parts of the world. God has already been doing centuries of work of preparation for that. 
When we talk about God's providence in regard to evangelism, friends, we're talking about a massive idea. Are you with me here today? And I want you to understand that there is great opportunity to see God's providence in action. I would say for most Christians, if you've known the Lord for a while, you could probably come up with a pretty amazing story, not made up, but a true account of how you saw God providentially working in a situation and he brought it together and he just boggled your mind with how much planning and care it took to bring all that together. And you probably would also say, if you're here this morning, I would like to see a good deal more of that in my life because it really encourages me about God's love for me and about God's care in all the things that concern me. And I want to give you just an encouragement along this line. If you would like to see more evidence of God's providences in your life, then I would encourage you to very much devote yourself to the sharing of the gospel. Because I think at no other time will you see God's providence in action as clearly as when you are involved in the sharing of the gospel. Why? because it's the thing about which God cares most. God has been working to get the gospel out to everyone, and it is something for which he sent his only begotten son. Therefore, if we will give ourselves for the sharing of the gospel, we're going to see more insights into God's providences than at any other time. And so this morning, I... Uh, just called to your attention this passage, which I believe highlights providential conversion. Now with that, let's do a little bit of review of how Paul gets to this point in our account. Going back to the sixth verse, we see that the apostle was trying to move out into new territory. In this, their second missionary journey, he is not now with Barnabas. He has a new partner. His name is Silas, and Silas is a prophet, and then they have stopped by the city of Lystra, and uh, evidently God had done a work of preparing Timothy so that Timothy is all is now uh, one of their partners in this mission trip. And then we'll see that uh, as they move across the water, uh, they will pick up another member of the team. His name is Luke, and we know that by the use of the word we as it comes up here in the first place here in the book of Acts. So Luke at times is a first-person narrator of the events. At other times, he is a third-person narrator saying that they did this, but now it's we who did this. And we notice that in this section that you see boxed off in uh, the map, that this is the pathway that they are going to travel. And you'll see two black X's because as the account shows us, they try to go into certain areas. Paul wants to go into Asia Minor. It is modern-day Turkey. And we know that God has big plans for Asia because as you read on in your Bible, you will see that the gospel does go there. And really toward the end of the New Testament, there are seven churches that are addressed by John. This would be about 80, 90 to 95. And they are all in the area of Asia Minor. So God has big plans for Asia, but what is strange, and it is the unanswered question to this point of the book of Acts is, why does the Holy Spirit say no in trying to go to Asia? 
you see that Paul and his team are trying to go to a place called Messiah. And the Spirit says, no, the Spirit suffers them not. And then they try to go north, up into the area of Bithynia. You may see that, it's in the green section toward the top of the map. But again, the Spirit of Jesus says, no, don't go there. So what are they left to do? Well, they are pretty much traveling that red line, which is on the north border of Asia Minor. And they're following the Ignatian Way, that is the main east-west uh, Roman road that you would cross through the Roman Empire. And that finally lets them out all the way to the coast. You can see it circled there in black. And that is Troas. This is the old Troy that you may have heard of. Or the people of Troy are called Trojans. You've heard of the Trojan Wars with the Greeks and so forth. That is the old city of Troy. And there is some... Uh, I got a picture here of what that road looked like that they, that they walked upon. That is the old Ignatian Way. And you can still walk it today if you take a, a, a tour of that area. And amazing how their roads held up over <laughs> thousands of years. Ours last approximately six months. But um, here they end up in Troas. And here is Paul now and the team, Silas and Timothy. They're standing here at water's edge. And yes, this would be the precise point that they are standing at looking over across the water and they are like, Lord, what do you want us to do? We have tried to go to a place that needs the gospel. But as we went there, the Spirit said, no, don't do it. And now we are standing here at water's edge. We don't know what you want us to do. And it is exactly at this point that you find the text saying that the Lord gave to Paul a vision. This is a supernatural vision. This was not a dream after eating too much pizza. This is a supernatural vision where the, Paul sees a Macedonian man saying in this vision, come over to Macedonia and help us. And you see in the next verse that Paul sits down with his missions team and they discuss this. That's what the word indicates. There is a, a meeting where they talk about it. Paul wasn't going to the meeting to say, hey, everybody, got new marching orders from the Lord. Everybody do. Everybody do it because God told me that we need to do this. But they work through it. They attempt to understand what God's direction is. They conclude, that is the verb, that the Lord had certainly called them over what is now Europe. This will be the first opportunity to share the gospel in Europe. So here is what may be a typical Macedonian man looked like in the first generation. Did, Luke, did uh, Paul actually know who this man was? There are some who think that he did. Some think it was Luke himself that Paul was seeing in that vision. But he must have looked something like that. Macedonia, of course, was the land of the Greeks. Uh, Philip of Macedon was Alexander the Great's father. So that's what the, the area was named for, or who it was named for. Now, I do want to bring to your attention a couple of uh, important points um, about God's guidance, just as a reminder. First of all, I would encourage you that you seek spiritual guidance, not always revelation. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, it's good that you not only study the word, but you also get some good, hearty spiritual counsel from people. 
because it seems that that's exactly what Paul did when he even got supernatural revelation. But I believe God leads through his word. I think there are other things as well. I think he leads through circumstances, the counsel of others, through peace in the heart. And we ought to consider all of those factors when we're trying to understand God's will. I remind you as well that circumstances are not always revelation. Don't consider hardship in the way that you think to be how God was leading you to be an evidence that, well, that's a closed door. Well, you know, remember, remember that the scripture also indicates, Paul said in another place, for a great door and effectual is opened unto us. That's an open door, right? And there are many adversaries. You know, anytime you're doing God's will, you're going to face opposition from those who don't want you to do God's will. There is the enemy of our souls who is absolutely intent on counteracting God's will. And there are a lot of people who are working on his side of things that don't want you to accomplish God's will either. Don't take those to be indications that God is closing a door. Open doors often come with enemies and attacks. So don't take those as circumstances that indicate God is not in it. Third, pursue burdens, but discuss them with other believers. So you have a burden right now to go and take over the work that the Grovers were doing in Ecuador. Amen. I'm sure the Grovers would love to pray with you about that. But you know, if you came to them after the service today and said, we, I believe God's called me to go to Ecuador and take over your mission, I think they would want to sit down and chat with you for a while about that to see whether there is some good credibility to the impression that you're receiving in your heart spiritually. Why? Because that's a wise thing for any Christian to do. Amen? So consider the burden, but also discuss it with other believers, especially godly, mature believers. Number four, and remember that your plans may fail, but don't quit, because that's exactly what Paul and his team experienced. Why can't we go into Asia? Lord's, the Lord's closed the doors now. We just keep smashing our nose against these walls or these closed doors. Why, why is that? Well, Paul doesn't say, well, it must be time to go home uh, to Tarsus or back to Antioch because God's not in it anymore. We've, we've experienced difficulty. No, they press on. They know they still have a command to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, right? You can't argue that that was the command. And that meant not going back home. It meant pressing on, even though our, their plans had failed and they continued to be focused and trusting in God's word, as should we. Now notice the verbs of action coming back to the text. They are following the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ to go into all the world. We come to the 11th verse, and you see, so setting sail from Troas. All right, now they've gotten on board a ship. Why? Because they can't go turn east into Asia. So they decided this must be what the Lord wants us to do. He has called us over into Macedonia. They set sail from Troas. Next verb. We made a direct voyage to Samothrace. I like the way the NASB puts it. We shot a straight course to Samothrace or ran a straight course to Samothrace. That is the island of Samothrace. Samothraki, as the Greeks call it today. It's a very mountainous island right there in the middle of the Aegean. And it's pretty much a stopover if you are taking that voyage by boat um, 156 miles from one uh, side of the water to the other. Uh, if winds are favorable, if you're sailing, you might make it in two to three days. If, you're, if they're not favorable, it might take five. 
but it looks like the winds were to their backs and they made this trip in two days and then a stopover on this island overnight. And then uh, going on into the text, it says, and the following day to Neapolis. So quickly Luke passes over and you say, boy, that's a lot of detail. It's like he was on board ship. Well, he is shortly to join this group, as you can see. And then they stop in the port city of Neapolis. Nia, meaning new, and polis, meaning city. So a new city. And we've got lots of cities named like that, don't we? You've heard of a little town south of us called Newton. <laughs> well, it's just a way of saying new town, right? Or um, uh, they've got lots and lots of cities like this. But anyway, this was an interesting port city and uh, had some gold up in the hills around it, so it did grow up to be a pretty good-sized city back in that day, enjoying a lot of prosperity and strategic position. So they get off ship there, off, off board, and they do not want to stay there, as the text goes on to say, verse 12, and from there to Philippi. Well, this is the road they would have traveled. Again, this is the Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way. They would have gotten on this road and headed the 10 miles out to the west uh, to Philippi, a little bit to the north as well. Um, what are we to draw from all this? Well, let me remind you that God brings about providential opportunities to share the gospel when we are obedient to his commands. That's what they're doing. They're following the command to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And the Lord is directing their steps. What's interesting is that other than saying, come over into Macedonia and help us through this vision, the actual location has not been clarified. Where do you go if that's your calling to do? Well, they're in the region of Macedonia already. When they got off boat and landed in Neapolis, they were there. Why did they not stop there? Why didn't they start preaching the gospel there? They're going to go to the leading city of Macedonia, which is Philippi. And that is going to be their center and their base of operations to minister throughout that area. For those of you who study missions, you might want to consider that because it would appear that they're just using logic and common wisdom uh, in trying to figure out what the Lord has for them to do. Was it the good call to make? Was it the right call to make? The answer is, let's read on and we'll find out. We go down to the 12th verse and it says that this city was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Let's stop there for a moment. What does that mean? Well, there were other cities that were pretty important too. And it may be that Luke is reflecting some of his own hometown pride in saying a leading city or even as it is in some texts, the first city of the colony. And uh, it might well be that Luke had gotten his medical training in Philippi because they did have an important school for training doctors there. But in any case, this city is called also a Roman colony. And what that means is that it was uh, part of the Roman Empire for 200 years already at this time. Also, it was benefiting by the fact that a decisive Roman war in the past had been fought there. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius there. And after that, many of the Roman veterans retired in that city at Rome's request. They were given land to be able to retire there. 
And what this effectively did was made this a very important Roman city at an outpost of the empire at that time. And the, and the Roman city meant that they did not have any responsibilities of being under a local governor or a prefect, but they answered directly to the emperor, despite being a long way away from Rome. Roman citizens settled there. Roman language prevailed, which was Latin in the archeological inscriptions that are found in Philippi. Most of them are written in Latin. And uh, this was a city where basically the people came and if they wanted to live in Rome, but just not be in Rome, this was a pretty good substitute for Rome because they tried to make a little Rome in another location. It was not the only city of its kind that way. Others were made this way as well. But when it says here in the text, Luke writes a Roman colony or a colony, that is what he is meaning. Now, that means that if you as a, a, a converted Jew are preaching the gospel, you better be okay with Roman culture. <laughs> you better be okay with preaching the gospel to people who come out of a very pagan Gentile background. And God has not thrown them into this environment first thing after the day of Pentecost. There have been a series of preparatory steps to bring them to the point where now they are really in a major Roman outpost here in the city of Philippi. That brings us to another important consideration. And that is, God is preparing both hearers and speakers for the gospel. Please remember that. He is preparing this, them to be in this particular city for that particular mission. We come to the text again. It says, Luke says, end of verse 12, we remained in this city some days. Doesn't use a real specific uh, designation for time. Verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. This doesn't surprise us at all from what we've seen from Paul uh, up to this point, does it? Why? Because the command was given by the Lord for the gospel to go, first of all, to the Jews, then to the Greeks, right? So any city he goes to, first stop, let's find the Jewish synagogue, let's preach the gospel there. And then after that, we'll branch out and minister the gospel to Gentiles. But we, we start with God's chosen people. And they find that in this particular city, there is no synagogue within the city gates or city walls. And so they go and look for it in a likely place. If the text says where we suppose there would be a place of prayer because it was typical for the Jews to establish their synagogues by rivers. Why? Because they did an awful lot of washings and purifications. Remember all that from the Old Testament? Okay, so they go out to the riverside and they find not a structure there, but they do find people who are gathered to worship. Now this is getting stranger by the moment. There's a Macedonian man who is saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. So they go looking around the city, there's no synagogue. They go down by the riverside, which is a kind of a, a figure of speech like saying to go downtown. And they go by the riverside and they find what? There is no standing synagogue, but there is a small group that is gathered there and it is a group of what? Of women. 
And I hope you're putting this together, that the first manifestation of the Macedonian call, a Macedonian man, was a group of women. You getting this? This is part of what that call involved. Now, if they had remained steadfast Jews from the mold in which they were brought up, this would not have been a ministry opportunity, right? Because having a mixed meeting with men and women was not part of the Jewish way. If they had been in synagogue, these women would not have been a part. But as it was in the providence of God, you with me here? There was no synagogue established. There weren't 10 men. This was the rule by law, rabbinic law. If there are 10 men in a community who are heads of homes, you start a synagogue. And with their tithes, they're able to support the ministry of that synagogue. So it only takes 10. By the way, we ought to consider this in church planting. <laughs> it, it, it's not that difficult. But then there is no synagogue there. There's a bunch of women. What are they doing? Well, they probably have things that would be part of a typical synagogue service, which would be reading of the scriptures, a time of prayer. And there would be also built in an expectation if there were any visiting speaker, and there probably were those from time to time, any, any visiting rabbi who happened to be coming through, then if he had a word of instruction or teaching for the people, then they would give him that opportunity as well. Well, wouldn't you know, as the women are gathered there, for this little Jewish Bible study, some visiting preachers show up. And as you go on in the text, you see it saying, verse 13, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, who spoke? Well, all of them did. Luke is now with the group. He says, we. So it is Paul. It is Silas, the prophet. It is young Timothy. And it is Luke, the physician, the Greek physician, who it says, we spoke to them. What form might that have taken? Probably personal testimonies, sharing how God had brought them to an understanding of salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ by different pathways, different avenues. And as they are speaking, one of them really stands forward from the others. Going on in the verse, it says, verse 14, one of those, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Let's stop there for just a moment. Lydia. Lydia, remarkable because this name also was the name of a region. It was the region that Thyatira was in. And there are some who think that this was not her actual name. But this is a representative name to speak of a convert who was from that particular area. Uh, I mean, it, it's a name just like America is a name, right? But not too many people we know have the name America. Just every now and then I hear of one. But Lydia, so she is definitely a woman from that area, and specifically from the city of Thyatira. And Thyatira is a city in Lydia, which is a region in Asia. Did a light just come on? Because we were wondering, that's the big unanswered question. Why did the God who said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, stop them twice from ministering the gospel in Asia? 
And then when they're on the shore of Asia, say, send a message to say, come over into Macedonia and help us. And they get there and find there is a woman there who is from Asia. Ah, it's starting to come together now, isn't it? God brought that woman to that place. How does she get over into Philippi? Well, the Bible says that she was a seller of purple goods. Next phrase. Purple goods. If you wanted to make the very finest purple in that day, you generally harvested shellfish. There's a particular kind that uh, you would take and extract the ink from. And that was the way of making the premium purple dye. How did that get used? Well, I'll show you a picture. That's a Roman toga. And this is starting to come together too. How does she have business in Philippi? Well, it's a Roman colony. Everybody wanted to look at, like they were res citizens of Rome, like they dress in Rome. And if you wanted to dress like the upper class in Rome, that meant a very white-looking toga, white speaking of purity, with a sash or trim that was purple. In fact, purple became an expression for royalty. To steal the purple means to take, uh, take office when you shouldn't have. That, that was an old expression. So Lydia has a, evidently a thriving export business in taking what was a cottage industry of women who manufactured the purple dye and then she would go and sell it. She is a merchant. She is a seller of purple and who's a better place to have business with selling purple than a Roman colony? So that's how this woman from Thyatira ends up over in Philippi. It's the Sabbath day. She wants to find some other uh, God-fearing folk to sit down with and read the scriptures to try to understand more about the God of Israel. And isn't it interesting that it's that very Sabbath day that God has this mission team show up. Friends, providence, right? It's providence. Okay, so we go on in the text and we see then, as it says, this woman who is the seller of purple goods and a worshiper of God the scripture then says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now let's stop and notice something here. This is what we pray for when we pray for missions. This is what we pray for when we pray for our work of evangelism. When we pray for one another to share the gospel in the course of our work. Or in the normal avenues of life. Because the Lord providentially directs both hearers and speakers. Do you see both happening here? There is providential direction of this. And you say, well, you know, I think if Paul came and spoke here, probably anybody who was sitting in this service would get saved. Do you think that? Not so fast. Anybody who is sitting in this service whose heart the Lord opens would be saved, okay? And I just say that because sometimes we put too much celebrity in our Christianity. We think it takes a certain person to share the gospel so that somebody can be saved. No, wrong. It takes the Lord opening the heart of a hearer 
to be saved. Have we forgotten that salvation is a supernatural thing from start to finish? It's a work of God. True? You say, well, I wish I could be better in sharing the gospel. Don't we all? But let's not forget this. It is the supernatural work of God opening the heart. And that's what's happening here. It's like it got split open like a watermelon. And Lydia's heart received those things which were being spoken of by the Apostle Paul. You say, what did that sound like? Well, you see in several places in the book of Acts him preaching the gospel. You could take that for an example. Uh, you see him laying out the gospel start to finish in the book of Romans. That would be a good example. So it's that sort of thing that she heard, and her heart was just drinking it in. She was so hungry, spiritually prepared, providentially prepared. And did she actually get saved at this time? Well, I think the only conclusion we can come to is yes, because in the very next sentence, she's getting baptized. <laughs> so I don't think Paul went and baptized people who weren't certainly saved. And by the way, you shouldn't get baptized either until you get saved, right? You should trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, opening your heart to the gospel, and then after you clearly understand what that means and you make that profession of faith, then enter the waters of baptism to tell everybody that you have identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and you're part of his family and you're going to be a follower of his and then be part of a good Bible-preaching local church. And serve the Lord there until he calls you home or calls you on somewhere else. That's the plan. Now I find it interesting we come to that next verse and find that after she was baptized, verse 15, and her household as well, which indicates what? Well, Lydia wasn't going to do this only on her own. <laughs> Who's in her household? Well, it's strange that it never mentions her being married. Maybe she brought children along with her. Maybe she had co-workers who were part of her team of merchandise of purple stuff. Um, maybe she had servants as well. We don't know. That was pretty typical back in that day. But anybody who was part of her household, I find it interesting that Lydia did not keep her faith to herself. Right? She must have shared it with everybody else and when she made that motion to receive Christ as Savior, it was clear that others were right there with her and following along. And I think that's a good pattern as well. We ought to make sure we are good witnesses within our homes. We are trying to bring our family over with us into that relationship with Christ. Don't be satisfied to be the only person in your house who believes. Make sure you're doing everything you can to be a good testimony, a solid witness, positive light for the gospel. You don't need to be overbearing. You don't need to badger people, but be a solid witness for Jesus Christ. And I think the Lord will give you the blessing of seeing others come to Christ. Well, after they were all baptized as well, I like this about Lydia. I see her open heart and her open home in that it says, Verse 15, after she was baptized in her house as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. Now, this is a conditional sentence, right? So it starts with the condition. How, if you're Paul and you're hearing her say this to you, how are you going to respond? If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. Well, how much time did he have to basically make that decision upon? 
Well, she only just got saved, right? There wasn't a whole lot of time to evaluate this. And what's he going to say to a newborn Christian? No, I don't think you're faithful to the Lord yet. No, I don't think that's probably what he's going to say. And we're finding out something about Lydia's personality here, aren't we? She is putting the apostle in a situation where it's impossible for him to say no. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, then she says, come to my house and stay. In other words, we are opening up the door of fellowship, of hospitality for you and your whole mission team. And you can stay here as long as you need. You don't need to get a hotel. You can stay with us. We want you to stay with us. You say, how did, how did she have a house over there? I thought we, she was from Thyatira. I think she probably had a house in both places. And she probably was receiving merchants who were in the business that she was in, coming to Philippi from time to time. And she would put them up for the days of business that they were there before they went back to wherever they came from. And, of course, at this time, there were no merchants who happened to be there, but there was a mission team that was there. It was no trouble for her at all to put these, these guys up for as long as they needed to be there. And it would appear, we find evidence later on in chapter 16, at any time they happened to be passing through, they had an open door to stay. The Grovers are too modest probably to say it, but I think when they find homes like that, it is a tremendous blessing to them as missionaries. And what I find is that fewer and fewer Christians are willing to do that, to open their homes and say, hey, we've got an extra room. Please stay with us. We want you to be with us anytime you're here. We have a prophet's chamber. We are willing to take care of you in the name of the Lord as something that we would do for the Lord and we're happy to do for you. I think there are special blessings that rest upon homes that have that kind of hospitality. You say, did Lydia genuinely come to Christ? I think the evidence is all over this as a genuine conversion, don't you? She uh, had already uh, ministered to her, her household as evidence. She followed the Lord quickly in believers' baptism as evidence. She opened her home in hospitality as evidence. Those are pretty good signs. Somebody really got it when they make a profession of faith in Christ. Now, we leave off in our text with one last thing, and that is Luke's comment. At the end of verse 15, it says, and she prevailed upon us. It's a very strong term here. In other words, she won out. How did she win out? Well, probably the implication is that Paul, who did not want to impose upon people that he shared the gospel with, he didn't want them to get the idea that he was there to try to take things from them. So he generally supported himself, right? That's what we learn from the epistles. And so when people would say, oh, you, you come and stay with us, he said, he'd say, no, no, that's okay. But uh, Lydia was not a person to be easily refused. Have you dealt with anybody like that? Where... Once they get it in their head that they're going to do something for you, it doesn't matter what you say. No, 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 that's fine. We're fine. We'll, we'll take care. No, no. It's not going to happen like that. It's going to happen like they say. And Lydia appears to be a person just like that. She prevailed upon us. <laughs> 
Friends, I hope our gift of hospitality is strong enough that at times we will prevail upon people who don't even uh, seem to want that. And I suppose it's a special gift of understanding though when to press and when not to. But Lydia was one who would press. <laughs> she was absolutely convinced that's what the Lord would have her to do. Do you see providence in our passage here today? I see it all over the place. Providence in the place, providence in the timing, providence with the hearers, providence with the speakers. And I just stop to ask you this. Do you think there is providence happening in your life right now? Do you think it's providential that you have some contacts with people who have recently come into your life, whether negatively or positively, that God is working out something that involves you? I think I had a providential appointment on Tuesday. On Tuesday, I went to the uh, hair cutter I always go to. I used to go to a barber shop, and uh, the gentleman who cut my hair for many years passed away, and so that left me in the position of doing something I never do, and that is find a hairdresser to go to a place they call a salon. And they don't have the little spinning multicolor ribbon in front of these places. And for a man, it's like, okay, now what? Well, it's mostly women who cut the hair there, and they don't have hunting and fishing magazines on the, on the tables. I hardly knew what to do. And then I sit down in the chair, I have to make an appointment at these places, whereas in the barber shop, you just come and sit down and wait X number of minutes until it's your turn to come up. But at this place, you make an appointment, and then you, when it's your time to come in at your appointment, Yet, unlike at a barber shop where there is a mirror, yes, but they turn you around so you don't look at yourself in the mirror. Only barbers look in mirrors, okay? Not the, not the customer. No, they turn you where you look at the mirror and uh, through this whole thing. And the women there don't talk about hunting and fishing and politics. I'm not sure what they talk about, but that's not what you talk about in a salon. So I'd been going to this salon for some time, and then the gal who'd been cutting my hair had a very bad headache that day, and so she transferred all of her appointments to some other gal that I'd never met before. I won't say her name, but I found out very quickly in talking to this gal, she had connections with this church. Very strong connections, and went here when she was just a little girl. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Well, I'm the pastor of that church. No way. <laughs> and we get to talking and interesting, interesting thing one of the things this gal likes to do is go fishing and I like to go fishing so I gave us something else to talk about that normally doesn't happen in a salon and it was really interesting as uh, this gal went on to talk about how well you know I just don't go to church much anymore but I do pray I said prayer is good but we also should worship with God's people I found I had opportunities to further our conversation in some areas where she needs that. And I believe God providentially put me in that chair on Tuesday. What do you think? What are, what's the likelihood I'd be talking with that person? Other, 
that, that my normal hair cutter had a terrible headache and couldn't cut my hair. You see what I'm saying? That was an evidence for me that God providentially directed this guy earlier in this week. Do you think that would happen to you if you opened yourself up to the Lord to say, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you'd have me to. I'm, have, you want me to talk to somebody, further a conversation? You know, we had an opportunity this morning as I, as I greeted Brother Grover. I said, how are you? And he said, well, better than I deserve. <laughs> You've probably heard that before, but you know why that's such a good expression? Because it creates interest on somebody's part as to why you would say that you're better than you deserve. Well, what do you deserve? Are you a really bad person? And if that isn't an opening for a gospel conversation, what is? There are several opportunities that we all have. I urge you to take them, to be open, and let the Lord lead you in them. Somebody would say, well, Pastor, I think we need a more aggressive evangelistic program at our church. I would agree with almost everything of that statement, except for the word program. You don't need a program to evangelize. You need to follow God's leading and his providences and let the Lord lead you because he will open doors.